Hi everyone, it's Paul here, and I first wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to Catherine Moncure for editing this episode, which is a conversation between Eugene and Hannah Bordorf, and they discuss the situation in Xinjiang and the families who are separated uh, because the parents are sent to the so-called re-education camps, while the children, many of them, are sent to boarding schools. And I highly encourage everyone listening to check out the Xinjiang Victims Database, which Hannah has worked on. And as I currently see it on the website, it contains nearly 9,000 entries. And each of them has a brief description about the individual, um, including a headshot, their hometown, and, and about their families. And what I can't get out of my head is that this is happening right now in 2020. And... That means this is not just a history lesson, Um, and this means that there is something that we as individuals and as governments can and should do about this, uh, whether it's speaking out or taking action. I think the other thing that is so impressive about what Hannah does and about this project is the importance of recording these stories and the faces and names, because if there weren't a program like this, these individuals really could be erased from the records and they might not have a legacy and people to remember them uh, beyond their own families. So without further ado, I leave it to Eugene and Hannah. And he's the one who's actually way more knowledgeable than I am. But due to the time difference and other circumstances, I'm hosting today's episode. So I'm going to try my best to follow along. And for listeners who are similarly, you know, unaware of the subject, you can learn along with me. So before going into the actual layout of the situation and the details, could you at least tell me a little bit about yourself? Like, how did you get interested? I didn't even know that you could get a PhD in Uyghur studies. (laughs) So what is your experience with China? How did you end up on this path? Okay, so um, I just say I'm doing a PhD in Uyghur studies. Um, That doesn't really exist officially in my university, but I'm officially in um, the modern language department in Chinese studies because I started all my university education as Chinese studies. So I became interested in Uyghurs and the place where they live inside China, the Uyghur Autonomous Region of Xinjiang. When I was doing an exchange program with Beijing University in 2009 and I stayed there for half a year and that's where I met the first Uyghur person ever in my life and I could absolutely not understand their language Um, and I was really surprised and they always kept on telling me about their hometown or home region, uh, Xinjiang, and it's so far away and it's so different. And when they were talking to each other, I could not understand their language at all. So I was very curious. And that year in summer, I traveled to that place. And this was just after the Urumqi riot. So in summer 2009, there were ethnic riots in the capital of that region. And I arrived there one month later and everything was 
on lockdown, the internet was shut down, which lasted for 10 months. I think this is something that is also known outside of China, I think. So I traveled there and then I became really interested in this. And then I spent one year at a university in Urumqi studying Uyghur language. And now I continuing my studies. So I focus on bilingual education, so-called bilingual education for Uyghur children in that region. So how they learn the Chinese language in the school system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What started your interest in China in the first place? If you go way back in time. Um, a very good friend of mine in elementary school, she's from China and she came with her mom when she was eight. And we became very good friends. We're still extremely good friends. Um, and we've been in school until we graduated. And she took me and some other friends to China when we were 18 and have a trip there. And I found it really interesting. I always liked learning languages. So first learned English and French and Spanish. And then since I never understood what Chinese people were saying or even doing, <laughs> I decided to go into Chinese studies in university to maybe understand better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, similar to a lot of other people's like spark an interest in a totally different random place i think it's through just random coincidence like that so well now we can go into the summary of the situation especially for people who don't know anything i know a little bit but i'm not an expert at all so could you just go over i know that xinjiang is an autonomous region of china but what does that mean and then also who are the uyghur people why is the language not the same as chinese basically everything this is just xinjiang 101 i guess yeah. <laughs> with you well, so the area is called nowadays Uyghur Autonomous Region of Xinjiang. So Xinjiang in Chinese means new frontier. This area has its own made up of population. There are different ethnic groups living there besides the Uyghur people. There are Kazakhs living there around 2 million. Uyghur people are about 10 million right now. Kyrgyz, Uzbek, Tatar, and of course, um, Chinese people are living there. So it's um, very ethnically mixed. However, when the Republic of China was founded in 1949, in the same area, only 6% of the population were ethnic Chinese. Nowadays, we are almost up to 40% and the Uyghurs are about 45%. So we can see that there has been a shift in who is living there. And well, there has always for a long time or sometimes <laughs> been conflict between the Uyghur population and the Chinese or the Chinese government right now because Uyghurs feel invaded or occupied or deprived of their rights and are unhappy with the situation. Maybe not everybody. I mean, it's all problems. It's not everybody has the same opinion about it. But if you compare the region to other places in China, then it's more troubled than in other regions. The, the region and has also been independent of China, like for a very short time in, in 1933 and then shortly again in 1940s, but that didn't last very long. And it then became an official autonomous region of China. So China granted autonomous statues. Usually China has provinces, um, but it granted autonomous statues to several of these provinces, which became autonomous regions. These regions are inhabited by ethnic minority groups or largely inhabited 
by them. And the legal idea or the idea behind giving more autonomous rights, which means in theory more self governing rights is in order to protect the way of living language etc 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 of these different ethnicities living in that area so that was introduced rather quickly after the Mao Zedong declared the foundation of the People's Republic of China. But this has been not really put into practice, especially in the Uyghur region, where the central government has been well, extending its control over the place more and more and more and more. And even though the laws protecting self-government and free use of one's own language, etc., etc., has been decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. So there's not much space left for people who were supposed to be protected by these laws cannot benefit from that anymore. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify a little bit of the very, very long history that we just covered, the part that confuses me is what was the story behind making these provinces autonomous to protect minority ethnic groups given you know china's history is largely centered on han chinese people so what was the motivation for granting those kinds of protections so this was introduced under Mao Zedong. His idea is based on communism and this introduction of ethnic minority groups is based on the Soviet model, which was also a very multi-ethnic state or the Soviet Union also had to manage lots of different ethnic groups. So China did the same more or less based on the Soviet model and categorized people into ethnic groups. So why did they do this if right now we have a very strong centralized state trying to control people's lives? Mao Zedong, as I said, he had, at least in the very beginning, comes from the Marxist background idea where he thought that ethnicity wasn't that important, but class was very important. So he saw people in classes. So if ethnic minorities or Han Chinese, if you were uh, farmers or you belong to the exploited group, well, then these people, they should join regardless of the ethnic group, because they have a common enemy, which is the rich people. So before 1949, there was a civil war in China. And I think Mao Zedong, he had promised ethnic minority groups in order to gain their support that they would have more freedom and autonomous rights if they became part of the People's Republic of China. So that was a different mindset at that moment. And it also quickly changed because ethnic minorities were also really affected by the Cultural Revolution. So the Cultural Revolution in Xinjiang, Uyghur people, they would also not be allowed to practice religion. And many people right now, what is happening to them right now, are comparing this to the Cultural Revolution. So you can see like from the 1950s when they implemented or when they founded the People's Republic of China and started creating all these laws to protect ethnic minority groups and give them more rights, preferential policies. Before there was a one-child policy, but ethnic minority groups were allowed to have two or even three children. So there are advantages for them based on their minority status. This all goes back to the time of Mao Zedong where he took the ideas of Marxism and communism into account, creating these kinds of laws. Mm -hmm. And to fast forward to today under Xi Jinping, what is his philosophy and how does that affect the ethnic minority groups? Well, Xi Jinping, he, um, well, the big theme is the great revival of the Chinese nation. There is something called the Chinese dream 
And that is also the revival of Confucianism and what the Chinese government, even before Xi Jinping, has been repeating and repeating all over is the unity of the country is very important and the stability is very important in order to develop economically and improve everybody's life. And that only works if everyone participates in this. So it doesn't exclude ethnic minorities from this. I think the Chinese dream is also applying to them and they should also be participating in this. But according to the way the Chinese government permits this, or maybe, well, according to their rules and ideas, I think that this works. I guess also a lot of how the media portrays these re-education camps, it's portrayed in a way where the liberal media kind of just uh, emphasizes the fact that these are quote-unquote re-education camps. They're not really educating anything they're just here to intern people how is the actual re-education working is it working from a different perspective because a lot of people just look at the situation and say oh these are human rights violations but in context of this revival of the chinese dream and unifying all of these different ethnic groups under a larger chinese ideology is that re-education working in some sense I think there's a difference between what people do voluntarily and what they are forced to do. And there's a difference between brainwashing and education. So what we have heard from people who have been to these centers and who managed to leave them and what also government documents tell us is that these people who are in there or who were in there are not going there voluntarily. This is what the Chinese government says. They say when people notice that they're having extremist or separatist or whatever terrorist thoughts, they would apply and go to these centers voluntarily. However, this is nobody who managed to get out of them has said at least in an environment where you can speak freely. And government documents also don't say that people are going there voluntarily. The government documents say that people are sent there. If you send somebody somewhere, I doubt that the person went there voluntarily if the government sends you somewhere. And I think well, what you can see in the media, it's what I can see as well, is eyewitness reports of people who managed to escape and who speak of bad conditions, of torture, of having to sing songs in order, like patriotic songs in order to be given food. In my opinion, this is not a normal treatment in school. <laughs> this is not what people are expecting to see when they go voluntarily into a university, for example. I mean, you don't sing patriotic songs in order to be given food. You are not beaten or electrified. So there are apparently many camps and it seems that there are different degrees of how people are treated, how severely they are controlled. We don't really know what's happening in there. So we can only rely on eyewitness accounts of people who have left those places but what they tell us doesn't really sound good or that people are being treated nicely there so what content is taught at these schools or camps i guess and the chinese rhetoric is that the islamic faith is a hindrance to obeying the communist party ideology what is the friction there how is the islamic faith a hindrance to obeying the communist ideology that's a good question. I'm not really sure what exactly they see as a conflict. Well, perhaps 
if I explain to you how people are supposed to pray right now, maybe that becomes a little clearer. Um, so let me start with that. And then I explain to you what is being taught in school. So somebody told me that when people are going to pray now, they're getting little slips of paper when they enter the mosque. And then they're only allowed to say what is written on the paper. That's the prayer they're allowed to say. And then while they're in the mosque, people's lips are being monitored so that they really only say the prayer they're allowed to say. They cannot add anything else. So people through cameras are watching what they're saying if the mosque is still open. And at the end, they have to say in Chinese, long live Xi Jinping. And his portrait is being put into mosques. So I think that is what the Chinese government wants, like Xi Jinping and is more important than any god. And as we can see, for example, with Falun Gong or unregistered churches in China, these groups are also persecuted. They also suffer from government interference, shutting them down, locking them up. So because they are big groups with a different ideology, different ideas, which exist outside the government's control. And I think this is what they don't like. They feel threatened about it. It's a threat to the Communist Party power, I guess. So how they perceive it. And I think this is why they might need to control it. In the case of Xinjiang, mixed to this is the potential threat of terrorist attacks. So since we had a few cases of apparently Possibly, we, we cannot ask them, but something that looks like a politically motivated or religiously motivated terrorist attack in other parts of China as well, like in Kunming or Beijing, but also in Xinjiang in 2013-2014. And we have Uyghurs fighting in Syria that also we don't really have numbers, several hundreds, several thousands, unclear. But these people exist, so these people have surely been radicalized and there is of course like in many european countries as well a threat of these people returning and carrying out more attacks so i think the chinese government is probably afraid of this and that's what they're trying to fight however we are not really sure how high or how severe the actual terrorist threat in that region really is because the chinese media have never really reported these kind of incidents it's just very recently that the chinese government since it's been heavily criticized telling everybody hey look at us we are really suffering very badly from terrorist attacks but we're not really informed about this before but i can see how they're afraid of course of maybe people coming there it's just not really clear how big the extent is because we don't really know about it. As far as I can see and I can understand and the numbers that are available, I'm not a terrorist expert, but to me it doesn't seem much higher the risk of these people returning and carrying out terrorist attacks than people from ISIS secretly returning to Europe and carrying out attacks, but who knows? There's this fear from the government. And then you wanted to know what people are learning in those camps. Well, depending on different camps and different reports, basically they're learning the Chinese language because the government says that this is very important to understand the national language and to speak it. People also learn about the law, some laws that exist in China, and I think they also have to reflect about their previous mistakes and misbehavior or whatever the government asks them to admit to and to reflect upon this and then to clear their minds of their extremist or terrorist ideas. To step back to an earlier part of that 
uh, what you just said was. I'm a little bit curious about the maybe this is an ignorant question I don't know but what is the religious breakdown in China is Islamic faith the biggest threat to subservience to communist party ideology or are there any other religious groups that are similarly kind of suppressed? So I don't have the numbers in my head. I think there are about 100 million or 80 million Christians in China. The Communist Party has around 80 million members, so that's about the same size. Well, they, they had a big crackdown on the Falun Gong, so I don't know how many members there are actually. And then for Muslims, I think it's less than that. So in Xinjiang, I think the Muslim population, so there are around 25 million people living in Xinjiang. And I think 9 million are Han Chinese and the rest are probably around 15 million people belonging to an ethnic group which is at least influenced by Islam. It doesn't mean that when you belong to this ethnic group that you are automatically a practicing Muslim. So it varies like the degree to which people are religious. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the reason that I asked that is just to try to disentangle what the Communist Party sees as a threat like is it because there's an overlap of the ethnicity and islamic faith like it's much easier to sequester or categorize this whole group of people in this autonomous region but what about all of these other muslim people living throughout china who are not as obviously living in the same space and not obviously close enough geographically for them to do anything as big as this to quote-unquote re-educate them well yeah it can explain something interesting about that because muslims in china do not only live in the xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region they live in other places as well a neighboring province where another ethnic group lives which is also majority muslims they have also explained that some of the mosques have been demolished so we know that mosques in xinjiang have been demolished and in the neighboring province where also many um, muslims live they have also reported that mosques have been demolished or the government tried to demolish it also in other cities like for example in beijing the government is trying to or has banned arabic signage like halal signs i've seen that and taken photos myself in beijing so they stuck stickers over them and you cannot see that anymore because china also has started a campaign of sinifying religion especially religion which is not native to china meaning islam and christianity so there are so to say attacks on religious life in other parts of china so that doesn't only concern muslims but also christians or falun gong in some cases even buddhists but even though people are muslims there is a difference in the degree of which the government is going to control their religious life and in Xinjiang it's especially extreme. So some actions which apparently in Xinjiang have been reported for having people end up in these camps are activities which are not a problem at all in other areas. For example, people in Xinjiang they have prayer rugs at home or they have a Quran at home. So police goes into people's homes and just looks around and if they find something that they don't like, like a crown for example, or praying rug, then people can get put into camps. This is not something that happens in Beijing or other regions of China. Like I visited the city of Yiwu last year, so that is near Shanghai, and they have a very big mosque 
and there was the call to prayer in Arabic language. I've never heard that in Xinjiang ever in my life. Um, so I was very surprised and a lot of people were walking to the mosque and some of them were carrying prayer rugs. I mean, it's very normal, right? This is the normal thing what people might be doing. This is unthinkable in Xinjiang right now. So this is the same country, this is the same religion, but different. Also the majority, and I think almost all people in EU that I saw uh, near Shanghai were non-Chinese, they were foreigners. But it's the same country, the same religion, but there are two different standards of what is considered extremist or terrorists in one region, while the same behavior is not considered a problem in other parts of China. To what degree do you think Xinjiang is a warning to various other Muslim groups throughout China? Because it seems on the one hand, I can see it being a warning, like don't do this, right? But on the other hand, China is so big. And then also, as you're saying, you're saying hi, where you were, it seems like there was no issue. So obviously those people were not, you know, afraid or influenced too much by the Xinjiang situation. So is it a warning or is it just specifically because of the intersection of religion and ethnic profile of the Uyghur people? Um, I think deep down the region is not religion at all. It's the problem of parts of the Uyghur population having had a problem with Chinese control in that region and there is a lot of unhappiness about this. There are also issues in how Uyghur people have access to work even if they try to work hard, learn Chinese well. There's a lot of discrimination, so there's a lot of frustration that has accumulated, I think, over the years. And the region has never been very calm. There has been difficulties for many times. So I think if somebody uses religion as a reason to attack people or to justify attacks or their behavior well then the reason the government might say we are targeting religion but i think the big problem is that there are parts of the Uyghur population that are very unhappy with what the chinese government has been doing and what you can also see is that before the 9-11 attacks in the united states the chinese government talked about uyghurs as being separatists so whenever there were violent attacks and violent display of anger the chinese government would say all oh, these are separatists and separatism is bad and after 9 11 the chinese government started to refer to same of kind of behavior people using violence to show their anger but the government they refer to them as terrorists so i think the problem we see there it's stayed the same it's just how the government maybe justifies or tries to find the root cause of it, saying it, the problem is that people there believe in Islam, which makes them have thoughts of attacking somebody or of not living the way they should be living or of being blocked in their way of living. But people there have been for a long time been Muslims. That's nothing new. So suddenly this becomes the problem, but also the problem of ethnic conflict or conflict between the Uyghurs and the Chinese government. That's also not something new. So yeah, I see that. So yeah, there's like a longer history between the Chinese government and the Uyghur population that plays a role. And the rhetoric of re-education or pinning it on Islam is the oldest political trick in the book of just, hey, I need to get rid of these people. I need to come up with something. This is a easy way to scapegoat it. Yeah, but I think it's both ways because I think that 
it is very possible that there are people who have very extreme ideas, like very extreme religious ideas for whatever reason, not the majority. That's again, you know, a very, 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 very tiny part of the population that is like this and that may carry out an attack based on that. And then that's being hyped. <laughs> but as far as we know, there is no organized terrorist group in Xinjiang. Like whenever we have seen in the past, whenever we have seen attacks, no matter what form of attacks, whether the government says this is a religious terrorist attack or this is a separate attack, whatever you want to call the attack. I'm just talking about Uyghur people using violence for whatever reason to attack other human beings or government institutions. These seem to be attacks by single people. They don't seem to belong to a group. There's no evidence that there is a network planning attacks and fighting the government. So these seem to be um, people having their own motivations. Maybe some justify them with religion. Others may not. Difficult to know. But I think the government is afraid because it knows what could happen if people come and radicalize more and more people. If they come back and they would try to gather more people around them and try to radicalize them. I think that's what they were afraid of. And then they took very drastic measures trying to control people, which became these, their control measures became so extreme that very, very normal religious behavior, like having a Quran at home, has been labeled as being a sign of extremism. So that's just far over the top. The basic idea, I think, is fear of more attacks. And the Chinese government doesn't need that, especially right now with their idea of the One Belt, One Road project, where they're trying to rebuild the ancient Silk Road trade uh, from China through Xinjiang, because Xinjiang connects China to Central Asia, Russia and Europe. And that's where China wants to go with the new project of um, reviving the, the Silk Road. So the place is very important for them, the Xinjiang region. So that's why they need to, how they call it, stabilize it. So they need to make sure that their plan of having this One Belt, One Road initiative work correctly, it depends on Xinjiang, well, being quiet and not sabotaging their plans. I think that all of this is really, really helpful to me, especially as somebody who doesn't really know that much about this issue, especially listeners who are like me, living in America, only have seen Xinjiang on the news for a great example of, hey, this is a human rights violation. That's just how it's usually depicted in the Western media. And listening to all of this, it just further validates for me the feeling that I've been having while doing this project and also just in my own life where so much of the media is... I'm not saying that the media is wrong, but the media does play on our emotions. It's how they get views. That's how the capitalist system works. So the way that they present Xinjiang as this one-dimensional human rights violation, I'm not saying it's not a human rights violation, but I'm just saying all of these other details are not explained in our current news cycle. And I think that these are all really, really helpful to put a lot of it into perspective and understand what this is. Well, I think that are two, there are two different things. I mean, one is to know about the background. And I think media doesn't have the time to give a lot of background explanation because you could talk for hours about the origins of the conflicts. And it's, it's really complicated. I think as many conflicts are really complicated. But I think it's a place of human rights violations. I think this is very clear. This is not 
media trying to hype something or to depict something incorrectly. I, I don't know if you've been there or if anyone has been there. I can just give you a very small example and maybe you can understand what it means to be in a surveillance state. I just give you a very, very short example and you understand. So usually when you walk alone in the dark, you feel afraid, especially when you're a woman, right? You will feel uncomfortable. So when I was visiting Xinjiang, because it has this extreme surveillance state that people have probably heard about, and you feel uncomfortable because you know that police is everywhere and you think you're being watched every second. So when I was walking outside and there was construction on the road, and one day I walked into like a construction, like a tunnel next to a building, there was a tunnel to, to cross the road. So they had constructed this and it was dark at, at night and I walked through the tunnel. I suddenly felt very light and I felt not watched and it was pitch black in the tunnel and I was alone there and it's totally inversed, right? Because usually, as I said, you'd be afraid in a very dark place all on your own. And I was in Xinjiang and I was in that city and I was alone in that pitch black tunnel and I thought, it's so nice. Nobody can see me here probably. And I just felt safe for a minute. So that's how I felt. I don't know how people who live there every day feel. That's something else. Actually, the next part of the conversation that I was going to ask you was about your experience traveling in Xinjiang, which you gave a really good anecdote about. Do you have any other big memories from your time there that you could share to help put it into perspective for listeners? Well, about traveling there or talking to people there. I've lived there in 2011, 2012, and course there's more police and control than in other parts of China but now it's just especially in 2018 like in 2019 it got a little bit better at least what you can see from the outside the control you can see every day all these measures they seem to have relaxed a little bit but just one example I visited a friend's family member at home. We had lunch at home and when we were done, we had people from the local government office coming and talking to me and then they wanted to register my passport information and after they were gone, another 20 minutes later, police came and they just walked into the house. They don't knock at the door, they just walk in as they please and they ask me more questions and then they asked the people who were present questions and then they asked questions about my friend, etc, etc. So I think this seems to be what happens to a lot of people there. So since I'm a foreigner, I mean, everybody is alert when I travel to certain regions outside the cities. So they always call the police when you go to the long distance bus station. And then one day, seven police officers came and asked me where I was going and why I was going there and what I'm doing there. And it's the police who decides if you can buy your bus ticket or not, if you are a foreigner. Or if you manage to go out of the city, then people might call the police saying that there's a foreigner because they need to report you. If they don't report you, they might get in trouble. So this is maybe something people cannot really imagine how something like this can exist, but they have really managed to yeah, put a very tight system of control there. And, and maybe people cannot understand. We know that in China, internet censorship and, and control of the internet is very strict and also very tight. And so they combined this also with physical control of people. Like if you travel between cities in 2018, I traveled with a long distance bus for around eight hours. There were several checkpoints on the street and each time I passed it took me 45 minutes 
to be questions and take photos etc etc like where are you going what are you doing Uyghur people like especially males they had their mobile phones scanned by police like everything you could see there so they put a lot of effort into trying to control what people do and to scan them very thoroughly to look for any kind of uh, what they find evidence of so-called terrorist or extremist potentially extremist behavior or thoughts and as we come to the end of our time, I just wanted to actually talk about family separation, which is supposed to be the theme of our podcast. But I do think that all of the history and the detail that you provided before is really helpful. So thank you for that. What stories do you have of family separation? What does it look like in Xinjiang? How is it different from other places? Yeah, so we have, I think we have different types of family separation. So we have, because these government policies, they were introduced in 2016, 2017. So Uyghurs, Kazakhs, other ethnic minority groups, they have been traveling back and forth between China and Kazakhstan, China and Turkey, etc. So what happened to some people, because without warning, a lot of people, they returned to China and they were trapped and they didn't know what was happening like it changed from one day to the other so families who had been living in both countries like parents and children they find themselves in either both parents being abroad and the child being in Xinjiang parents not being able to contact the relatives with whom the child has been staying so they have no idea about what happened to their child we have the case where one parent is abroad and their husband or wife has been disappeared, like has been detained, and this person wasn't taking care of their children, so they lost contact with other family members, so they don't know what happened to their child. We also have children, for example, in Turkey, so the parents maybe left their children in Turkey with a family member and uh, returned home for visiting uh, their own parents, like for a short trip, and then they were not able to leave again, because as soon as they crossed the border into China, without knowing what had happened, what was going on at that time, like now we know, of course, Course, but when it started, nobody was aware of it. So then their children, they left in Turkey. So when I visited Istanbul last year and I met with a lady and spoke to her and she told me, oh, now I'm going to the hospital. I said, oh, what happened? Oh, I'm, I'm taking care of a 13-year-old Uyghur boy. He's having an operation. Both of his parents, they are they're gone in Xinjiang, like they are not to be found. They returned and we don't have news from them. So this boy has been living in Istanbul for two years. So the lady went there to pay his, I think, some of his medical bills. So that's not just one case. I think there are several children who are abroad alone. So that's separation of parents and children across two different countries one part of the family being trapped in china in some cases we don't really know where these children are because most of the time we would need to be able to contact the relatives who have been staying with them but in most of the cases the contact is lost so there's one case where i tried to travel to the countryside in aksu and more or less the center of xinjiang because a Uyghur lady who's living with one of her daughters in belgium right now she has been trying to get in touch with her family for i think over two years because her husband seems to be in a camp her mother seems to be in a camp the mother was living with other of her children together and these children also had children so the lady who in Belgium right now, she cannot contact any one of them in the household. So she has lost contact with her mom, with brothers and sisters, and the husband and wife of the brothers and sisters, including the kids. So 
We don't know what has happened to those children. It seems that the parents have all been placed into prison or camp. And since that apparently seems to have happened to all of the adults, we are not really sure who is taking care of the children. Somebody should do that. So if we look at some reporting by family members, some of them have been able to confirm that children were taken to state-run orphanages. Also, government documents suggest this. They collect a lot of information about families and some uh, documents that some researchers have obtained. They show notes on these families where both parents have been detained. And so these kids, they're going to orphanages or there are lots of different euphemisms like loving heart, kindergarten, or sometimes going to boarding schools. Schools have been newly built. Enrollment rate has increased, etc., etc. So this state I think is making sure that these children are being looked after but since their parents are being taken away to these camps or sometimes to prison the children are also being put into permanent care of the state so I'm not sure if this is what the parents want um, it's difficult to ask there is one case which had been on the news of a Uyghur lady who's living in Turkey right now so she was in Turkey and her husband returned and their children had been for a short time staying with relatives and her husband returned I think in 2017 and was immediately taken away and she was able to keep in touch with her sister who had been looking after her four children but they lost touch I think in the middle of 2017 so her husband was detained, no news from her family members, and she didn't know what had happened to her children. Possible that they were living there, but afraid to keep in touch with her. And then in December 2018, she saw on the internet, by by chance, she saw a video that was made in an orphanage or in a school, difficult to say, where several kids were sitting and she recognized that one of the kids was her daughter. But she was in a different city. She was not in their hometown. So she was very worried because she saw her kid in the school and it was not in the place where she had left the daughter with her sister. And that's the only news she basically got since middle of 2017 when contact was lost with the people who were taking care, like the relatives of her children. And another father living in Turkey right now, whose wife has also been sent to prison in Xinjiang, he also found a video of his son, who was apparently in a Chinese orphanage, being asked questions by a teacher who recorded this conversation, or somebody working, I don't know if it's a teacher, but somebody working in there asking him, what's your fatherland, and what's your name, and the kid replying, the kid is five right now, I think, replying in Chinese, and the father said he'd never spoken Chinese, so the kid was speaking Chinese there. So the father was, of course, really upset, because he had no means of contacting his child but then he only saw a video on the internet and that's all he got so far (laughs) as the news yeah i think all of these stories are resonant with a couple of other stories in different episodes on this podcast so far and thank you for sharing all of those you can see more on the victims database that you work on and i wanted to ask about how did you get involved in that what is the motivation or story behind the victims database which you can find online um so um when i in i think summer 2018 is when there were lots of media reports appearing 
about the situation and about people having been disappeared etc etc so at that time I had just moved back to China and I was living there and I was reading all these reports and I was thinking how is that possible that there are so many people because it didn't stop and then I thought well they're going to report this in the news and then what's going to happen after they reported it it's going to disappear in the nirvana you know because it's just been reported once or twice and then people they forget because they don't follow on everything i mean that's really normal so then i started collecting these newspaper articles and i started writing a list and then the founder of the xinjiang victims database uh, jean bunen he used to live in xinjiang and i contacted him about other things so i saw that he had started the database and at some point i had a very long list of names and i just emailed him and i said do you want my data and then he was very happy about it but he said well i can't import an excel sheet into my database you have to enter them so then i just started writing entries for these people based on the media reporting so this is basically what i continued doing then if i had time when i was reading these articles i just saved them and then based on the information that was provided in these articles i wrote an entry about what had happened to a certain person because for me personally it was about that people should not be forgotten and that somebody should be held responsible for what had happened to them and so that people wouldn't be forgetting and still with the intention of trying to find these people because in my opinion they should be coming back they cannot just be gone forever so then the intention of Jean who founded the database was to help people overcome their fear of speaking out because lots of Uyghur people they are used to the Chinese government being very strong and powerful I mean it's a state it's the government if they want to they can lock you up they say you're telling lies just look at the coronavirus right now what happened to the doctor who tried to reveal what was happening and the government said that he spread rumors and now the Chinese ambassador is saying that he is a national hero so it <laughs> it's uh, Uyghurs they know that they lose basically they lose against the government no matter what they say and they're really 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 afraid this is why it took so long for information to come out so the reason that this database was created by Gene what, what he said was that he wanted to encourage people to speak out to add their voice to what other people said by seeing that they are not alone and that it might be better to speak out to make it public because the chinese government doesn't like you to make things public so that everybody will know about it and jean said well if we have 1000 or 2000 testimonies by people maybe people will be less afraid to add number 2001 to it because it will just disappear or just not really stand out as you being the one and only person and now it has also changed like the motivation is also to document so to collect all kind of information that is available about the person or what has happened to them to have some proof or evidence of what has happened so that it's not just stories that people invented so people can submit documents or whatever they have to prove more or less what has happened to their relatives so um yes yeah and how do you continue to do the work despite knowing the many risks involved well d depends what kind of work you do um the risk like working on the database, there is no risk. Going to China, nobody knows what the risk is. You can risk 
maybe not getting a visa but to me that is not really a risk because I don't care I mean if somebody doesn't want to give me a visa then they just don't want to give me a visa that is not really a risk so for me personally I don't really see a very big risk in doing this kind of work I don't think <laughs> people that's good yeah. yeah people at risk are I think people who live in Xinjiang you know because they are at risk of something happening to them but myself I don't think that I'm at risk well that's good to hear and that's about all we have yeah. time for today but I hope that Paul is able to do another episode in the future about what can be done about the situation what are the pieces in play geopolitically and details into that but this was a very very good conversation about an introduction to everything so thank you so much for your time and yeah. yeah thank you very much for your questions thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project, please follow us on social media at Divided Families Podcast. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music and see you next time.